Would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 25, verse 13. And today we're considering the last of Paul's recorded trials in the book of Acts. It's the fifth of five trials. This time it's before King Herod Agrippa II. And as you're finding your place, let me just mention a few things that, that might be helpful. Um, <clears throat> to be clear, this isn't Paul's last trial. It's his penultimate trial. His final trial, of which we have no record, is in Rome. It's before Emperor Nero. Uh, now, some Christians believe Paul is martyred on that occasion. Paul arrives in Rome, he stands trial, and Nero orders his death. Uh, but that's incorrect. Uh, you could, you look at your PDF handout, you can see the chronology of Paul's life. Paul stays in Rome uh, under house arrest for two years. And he's in Caesarea uh, for two years as well. Uh, but reliable early church accounts associate the apostles' death with Nero's general persecution of Christians in AD 64 and 65. And it's unlikely that Paul's two-year stay in Rome uh, brings us up to that later date. As well, the evidence of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, point to a period of further ministry for the Apostle Paul in the Eastern Mediterranean after his Roman imprisonment of Acts 28. Something else to bear in mind, uh, we saw last week that the trials before governors Felix and Festus and today before King Agrippa, they serve a number of purposes in Luke's narrative, but one of the big ones is in fulfillment of Luke's, uh, Jesus' prophecy in Luke uh, 21, 12 to 13. Our Lord warns his apostles, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be, be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. And in our text today, this is Paul's final defense before heading to Rome. And it, and it certainly is a defense where he bears testimony to Jesus Christ. However, Paul's direct appeal to King Herod Agrippa, who's part Jewish, uh, and who believes the Old Testament prophets, it's openly evangelistic. Uh, Paul is wonderfully direct in his address to Agrippa. Uh, Paul's defense, all right, it isn't at all defensive. His address reads more like an evangelistic offensive attack than the plea of a frightened or cowed prisoner. And, and just as his defense isn't defensive, so his uh, offense never becomes offensive. One final thing, due to the lockdown extension, let me just give you a projected forecast of these video lessons. Uh, our goal today is to get to the end of chapter 26, all of Paul's trial before Herod Agrippa. Next week is chapter 27 and the first part of 28, so it's the start of Paul's sea voyage to Rome, the storm, and the shipwreck on the island of Malta. That's next week, Lord willing, and then the following week, will take us to the end of chapter 28 with Paul's arrival in the capital and his meeting with the Jews in Rome. And then we're done with the book of Acts. Uh, and then, Lord willing, it's back to 918 Bathurst and we'll start 1 Corinthians. That's the plan. All right. So uh, let's get started. Acts 25, verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. And this is Agrippa II, also known as Marcus Julius Agrippa, the son of Agrippa I from Acts chapter 12, where the Lord struck him and he died of an internal uh, infestation of worms. And, and the great, great, oh, sorry, just the great grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who tried to kill the baby Jesus. 
Agrippa II, he was only 17 years old when his father died. And so the Romans placed uh, his father's kingdom under the authority of Roman governors or until he became of age. And in the years that followed, Rome gradually gave him authority over a number of mostly Gentile cities, north and east of Galilee. And you can see his territory on your map in page one. Uh, and, but while the Roman governor ruled Judea and Galilee and Samaria, the emperor Claudius had committed uh, to this man, to Agrippa, uh, both the care of the Jerusalem temple and the appointment of the high priest. Both those things, the temple and the high priest, came under his jurisdiction, and Bernice was his older sister. Bernice had been married to her uncle, Herod of Chalcis, and had two sons with him. Uh, but after his death in AD 48, so about 10 years previous to this, she lived in the palace with her brother Agrippa. And rumors were rife that their relationship was incestuous. That comes from multiple sources. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, he records that in AD 63, Bernice married Polemon, king of Cilicia, in an attempt to overcome the scandal, but she soon returned to Agrippa. And then during the, the first Jewish-Roman war in AD 66, she began a love affair with the, uh, with the future emperor, Titus. Uh, Titus actually wanted to marry her. Uh, but he didn't in the end because of Roman prejudice and antipathy against Jews. But, I mean, that's a, that's a very storied history there, but that, there's a, certainly there's an irony in having such a couple sit in judgment on the Apostle Paul, who Luke's, Luke makes clear is innocent. Uh, this, is, this is a world turned upside down. But now these two important people close to Judaism that their heritage originally is Edomite, but they come to Caesarea to pay their respects to the new governor, Festus. And during their stay, Festus raises Paul's case. It's a case he's inherited from Governor Felix, their brother-in-law. You'll recall that Felix married their younger sister, the beautiful Drusilla, who had been wooed away from her husband through the use of uh, uh, Felix using magic from a Cypriot magician. Uh, Festus wants advice. And Agrippa had a reputation of being an expert in Jewish issues. Uh, he was also, though, he was a faithful vassal of Rome. So he's kind of getting the best of both worlds. And actually, later, Agrippa would side with Rome in the war that led to Jerusalem's defeat in AD 70. So look at verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. <clears throat> when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that this is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, uh, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some point of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Now, we saw last week that Tertullus, the lawyer, he had suggested uh, that there was a political dimension to Paul's ministry. That's, that's why all of this warrants a trial before the Roman governor, right? Look at uh, 24, five. We found this man to be a troublemaker stirring up riots. 
uh, among the Jews all over the, the Roman world, right? That is a serious accusation. Uh, there are many Jewish agitators at this time. There were uh, messianic pretenders who threatened the Roman peace, and Rome took that seriously. And th this, this must have been, though, on record as part of the prosecution's case. But Festus says here that as far as he can tell, the accusations raised against Paul were actually theological. Right? The Jewish leaders had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. The Romans, of course, uh, didn't believe in resurrection. So this would be a foreign religious concept to them. And if Paul's being charged with believing in the resurrection, that's something Rome can't judge. It's not a civil matter. But here's the thing. If Governor Festus perceives that the issue is actually theological, that it's not something to the secular authorities, then why didn't he say so earlier and just acquit Paul? This clearly exposes the governor's political compromise with the Jews and his failure to act according to Roman standards. He's not being just. Verse 20, I was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. And Paul's trial before King Herod Agrippa II is the longest and most elaborate of the five trials. Luke sketches the scene in graphic detail. It's thought that Luke very well could have been in the visitor's gallery. gallery. Um, so look at verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room. And, and the Herods would have had on their purple robes of royalty to be wearing their golden crowns. And no doubt Festus, to do honor to the occasion, he donned the scarlet robe, which a, a Roman governor wore on state occasions. Following them, as they entered the audience room in the pageantry of the procession, were both high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. There's a, this is a big to-do. When they had taken their seats at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And, and Paul is in chains, of course. And now Governor Festus, he introduces the case, and we see that in his introduction, there's a, there's a mixture of truth and error. So look at verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. See, he's kind of like, he's sort of, in a sense, shifting, shifting the blame, shifting the buck and saying, look, you, you started this appeal process. I can't get involved with it now. So it's out of my hand. It's out of my hands and off to Caesar you go. I should have acquitted you ages ago, but you know you, you, should, you did this yourself, Paul. Uh, but I have nothing definite to write his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Truth and error in those statements. It, yes, it's true that the Jewish community had twice petitioned for Paul's death and that Festus had not found him guilty of any capital offense. That's true. Yet it was not true that Festus had nothing definite to write to his majesty about concerning Paul, uh, nor could he specify the charges against him. Uh, that's a load of hogwash. 
The, the Jewish charges were definite. They were specific. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, storing up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's the ringleader of the heretical Nazarene sect, and he tried to desecrate the temple. Those are their charges. So what Festus lacks here isn't charges, but it's, it's evidence to substantiate the charges. And for lack of this, he should have had the courage to declare Paul innocent and release him. Now Paul makes his defense. And I, I can't help but look at this as being sort of like a scene in a movie. You could just see how it'd be filmed. Uh, this, this very dramatic event, this moment when, when the holy and the humble apostle of Jesus Christ, he stands before this representative of the, of the worldly, ambitious, morally corrupt family of the Herods, who for generation after generation have set themselves in opposition to truth and righteousness. Their founder, Herod the Great had tried to kill the infant Jesus. His son, Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, had beheaded John the Baptist. And he won from our Lord the title of Fox, that Fox Herod. Uh, then uh, he had a role in Jesus' death, as Peter makes clear in Acts chapter 4, 27. Remember, he says, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod Agrippa I had killed James, the son of Zebedee, with the sword. And now we see Paul brought before Herod Agrippa's son. <clears throat> and as he tells the story, Paul draws attention, I guess, to three principal uh, phases in his life. There's Paul, the strict Pharisee, Paul, the fanatical persecutor of the way, and Paul, the commissioned apostle. So what we're going to read now is kind of divided into those three chunks. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand, probably for quiet, and began his defense. And first off, we saw this last week too, it's the Captatio Benevolentiae, right? King Agrippa. And notice Paul is addressing him directly. King Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. So Paul's a familiar figure, uh, and he quickly gained a reputation for scholarship and for righteousness and for religious zeal. And many Jews who were still alive in that day um, had known him as a child, you know, first at Tarsus, then as he grew up in Jerusalem. And, uh, and more than that, they, they had known him personally, and they could testify from their own experience that he had belonged to the strictest party in Judaism. He was a Pharisee. <clears throat> so it was surely strange, right? This is, this is anomalous, that Paul, of all people, should now be on trial for his hope in God's promise to their Jewish ancestors. That, that promise that God would send his Messiah foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures to rescue and redeem his people. Listen to how often he uses that word hope. 
Verse six, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So do you see that the 12 tribes of Israel, they're still eagerly expecting the fulfillment of this promise. They're still living in that hope. Paul goes on to say that it's actually already been fulfilled in Jesus, right? Whose resurrection was proof of his messiahship and a pledge of the final resurrection too. So why should anybody think that this doctrine of the resurrection is incredible? The Pharisees believed it. And now God has demonstrated it in history by raising Jesus from the dead. So that's the first little bit. Now he goes on to describe his fanatical persecution. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, like he, he's showing the, the common ground that he would have with the, even his accusers here, right? And, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Saul the Pharisee, he was convinced that it was his solemn duty to oppose the name and, and, and the claims of Jesus of Nazareth as an imposter. And he was a man who had the, the courage of his convictions. He began his persecution in Jerusalem, armed with authority from the chief priests. He not only imprisoned many disciples of Jesus, but even when they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. He searched the synagogues for Christians in order to bring them to punishment. That would be the synagogue punishment of whipping, 40 lashes minus one, uh, which Paul himself was later to receive. Second Corinthians eleven twenty four. he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. He even tried by force to make followers of the way blaspheme. And that phrase indicates that he wasn't always successful. And his obsession in his, in his raging fury, he pursued Christians even to foreign cities. But then Paul met the risen Christ. And I feel it would be an unforgivable opportunity wasted. Uh, if we didn't leave Luke's account just for a moment and consider Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. I want you to turn there, please. Philippians 3, 4 to 9. What, what was Paul thinking as he was doing all of this? All right. Here we have it. This is one of the most significant statements on the matter of salvation, also found anywhere in the New Testament. Philippians 3, 4 to 9. And, and in these marvelous verses, we find one of the great personal testimonies in the New Testament, right? If, if the Apostle Paul were joining the membership at New City Baptist Church, this is the testimony that we'd be voting on at our next members meeting. What we do in one page, what I make you do in one page, <laughs> he does it in six verses. Uh, so if someone else thinks, this is what the text says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Beloved, these, these verses take us into the very heart of the sinner's attitude in conversion. And it takes us into the very heart of justification through faith alone, not as an abstract theological doctrine, but in the real salvation of one simple man who is boasting in all the wrong things. And I want us to notice that Paul sees this matter of salvation from the viewpoint of a transaction or an exchange, right? Paul's using business. He's using accounting terminology in his testimony. The heart of the passage is in verses 7 and 8. And you'll notice that in verse 7, the word gain is used or profit or credit. So what I want us to do is I want us just to picture in our minds is an accounting ledger, all right? With one part of it has a credit column. You'll also notice in verse 7 the word loss or debit. So in your ledger, add a debit column as well. In his testimony, the Apostle Paul is talking about profit and loss, credit and debit. And there are certain things which Paul felt at one point in his life, the point in his life he's testifying about right now before King Agrippa II, that were definitely in his credit column when it came to his just standing before God. These were the grounds of his certain hope, his confidence and boasting. And and then he switched all those things over into the debit column when he encountered the resurrected Jesus. This whole business about placing confidence in the flesh, that's something that Paul understands from the inside. He's gone down this road himself. He knows it's a dead end, and he's speaking from experience. Everything that was formerly in his credit card column, all of that is garbage. So let's just pick things up in verse 2. All right, let's get the context of Philippians 3. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh who say you must be circumcised to be saved, right? These are Judaizers. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And that's very important. What does Paul mean by flesh? What's he getting at? It's that in which human beings place their trust as a grounds of confidence before God. So I'd ask you, did you help an old lady cross the street yesterday? Uh, Did you donate some nice clothes to charity? Did you give a nice fat check to New City Baptist Church? Did you read your Bible and pray every day this week? Well, if that gives you confidence before God on Judgment Day, that's flesh. You're trusting in flesh. 
Uh, listen to how the NLT translates verse 3. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. But in a very context-specific way, flesh has another shade in this passage as well. Jewish privileges and achievements. For example, circumcision, Jewish descent, and blamelessness in fulfilling the law of Moses. And were Paul so inclined, he's a man who could boast about the many, many grounds of religious confidence that he himself enjoyed. And at one point in his life, he certainly did boast in his flesh. Paul boasted. He took great confidence in his inherited privileges as a biological child of Father Abraham and his personal achievements. These Judaizers in Philippi who are insisting on new covenant circumcision, man, they have nothing on the Apostle Paul. All, all these things that they're boasting in, Paul blows them out of the water. He's got it in spades. Verse 4, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's saying, if it wants to play, if it wants to play the, the, the circumcised Jew game or the kosher Jew game or the legally righteous Jew game, bring it on. And then Paul begins listing his inherited privileges, right? Four in total. Uh, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. Add that to the credit column, right? Check. Of the people of Israel, right? He is a full-blooded covenantally belonging to the, the people of Yahweh. He's a full-blooded Jew. And add that to the credit column. Check of the tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes that did not rebel against the Davidic dynasty. Add that to the credit column. Check. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was steeped in the language and culture of his racial and religious heritage, receiving his educational formation in Jerusalem. Add that to the credit column. Check. And the next three credentials that enabled Paul previously to boast in his flesh, they're all personal achievements above and beyond many other Jews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. So strict, disciplined, informed, widely respected. Add that to the credit column. Check. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Th those, those promoters of a false messiah. Add that to the credit column. That would get him into Yahweh's good books for sure. Check. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Not that he had attained sinless perfection. That's not what that means. But the law provided remedies for sin, uh, prescribing certain sacrifices, such as the Day of Atonement. And Paul carefully followed the entire pattern of Jewish religious life. He was utterly exemplary. Add that to the credit column. Check. So do you see what confidence Paul had, what boasting he indulged in regarding his ethnic privileges and his religious accomplishments? If any, if any Jew had right standing before God, it was surely Paul, Saul of Tarsus. But when Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, all those things that he once believed were so valuable and so important, such solid ground for confidence when standing before God's judgment throne, he instantly considered them to be worthless because of what God had accomplished in the gospel. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. Everything in that credit column, check, 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 was transferred now to the debit column. And Christ alone stands in the credit column. That's the only thing that's in that column. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss. Not just the former gains of five and six, but everything, all things, Paul says. Everything that others might consider to have value in this present age, religious advantages, status, material benefits, honor, comforts. Uh, these appear to Paul as nothing at all, as a total loss in comparison to Jesus. What is more, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, the excellency, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And lose them he did. Paul was written off by his former friends and intellectual peers. Paul lost the security of a home. He became a constant traveler with no fixed address. He was in prison repeatedly, flogged severely, exposed to death again and again. We're going to see that in the next chapter. Yet, yet none of this is uttered by way of complaint. Paul's not grumbling. There's no self-pity in any of this. Uh, regarding all those things that were taken away from him, Paul calmly asserts in verse 8, I consider all those things, I consider them garbage. And that word refers to human excrement. Garbage thrown away. Something useless, waste, rejected, filth, refuse. Paul saying, all of my profit column I saw to be dung, manure, waste, excrement. Get rid of it. It has no value. I consider them garbage, verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What Paul is doing in this very important text, brothers and sisters, is he is exposing his fundamental values. And it's not just Paul, right? This is every single Christian. On one side stands everything the world has to offer, supposed religious advantages, status, material benefits, honor, comforts, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, denominational alignments, whatever, everything that others might consider to have value in this present age. On the other side stands Jesus Christ and the righteousness, the justification that comes from God on the basis of faith. And the Apostle Paul insists that there is, that there is no contest. Jesus and the righteousness from God that Jesus secures are incomparably, incomparably better. And as far as Paul's concerned, everything else is garbage in comparison with gaining Christ, with receiving this righteousness from God that is by faith. So take all of that now. You're, you're, you're able to have like that big, big picture of what Paul was thinking as he was going through these actions and doing all these things as he's explaining this to uh, Herod Agrippa. Turn back now to Acts 26 and verse 12 where Paul now describes his conversion and his commissioning as an apostle, 12 to 18. Damascus is one of these foreign cities to which Paul traveled. He's equipped with high priestly extradition orders. Verse 12, 
On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. But before he, uh, he reached his des destination, this divine intervention takes place. 13, about noon, King Agrippa, so he's still talking to the king. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharp pointed stick used to move animals in a particular direction. Uh, the King James Version is pricks. You may have heard that kick against the pricks. Uh, in this context, what the exalted Jesus means is it is hard for you, Paul, to resist God's purpose for your life. It's a way of speaking about the Lord prodding Paul into another direction, which he had no choice but to follow, the path of proclaiming this same Jesus that he had been attacking. And perhaps the saying is included in this particular account because it's the only place where that saying is mentioned. And he recounts the, the Luke recounts uh, Paul's Damascus conversion three times. This is the only place where that part's mentioned. Maybe it says a warning uh, to Agrippa and to others present. Paul might be saying, my plan to exterminate the church was doomed to fail, King Agrippa, because I was kicking against the irresistible sovereign purposes of God. And by implication, the opposition of Jewish and Roman officials to Christianity cannot ultimately succeed. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. And a great deal of Paul's theology worked out and displayed in his letters stems from this brute historic fact that Jesus is alive and glorified. If Jesus is alive and glorified, then somehow that means his death on the cross did not prove that he was damned. Far from it. The claim of the followers of the way that God raised Jesus from the dead and that they had seen him with their own eyes. These same people that he, Paul, was now had been throwing into jail. Their testimony must be true. And that could only mean that God had vindicated Jesus. So what on earth did Jesus' death mean then? Because from this vantage point, everything looks different. If Jesus was under the curse of God when he died, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, Deuteronomy 21, 23, yet he was vindicated by God himself as he was raised from death, then he must have died for others. Somehow, this is what Paul's thinking, right? His death absorbed the righteous curse of God that was due others and canceled it out. In that light, the entire history of the Hebrew scriptures looks very different, it, but it looks consistent too. Uh, after all, wasn't it prophesied in the book of Isaiah 700 years before that the suffering servant was pierced for our transgressions? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Paul's thinking, does the death of countless lambs and bulls really take away human sin? Or do we need, as it were, a human lamb of God, a human Passover lamb? 
If the tabernacle and temple rituals are read as pointing to God's final solution for sin and reconciliation between God and human beings, what does that say about the present status of the covenanted the covenant enacted at Sinai? What about scriptural texts that promise a new covenant and a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What place does the promise to Abraham have in the scheme of all of this? That in Abraham's offering, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. Grant that Jesus is alive and vindicated and absolutely everything changes. Verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appointed, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And if you're a Gentile, and as far as I know, we're all Gentiles here today, we should underline that and circle it. What an amazing piece of testimony that is from the exalted Lord Jesus. I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. And of course, what was especially significant in Jesus commissioning of Paul is that the Gentiles, they're here being granted a full and equal share with the Jews of those who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're, they're part, 100% a part of God's holy people, his new covenant people. Verse 19, so then King Agrippa, notice he's still talking right to him. I was not disobedient to the message from heaven. How could he have been, right? The vision was from heaven and it was overwhelming. His fanatical opposition was overcome in a moment. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and to all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And then Paul drops the bomb. And as we'll see, he expects Agrippa to get this. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And although Paul isn't on trial here in a formal sense, uh, Governor Festus, he was preparing a report on this case to send uh, to the imperial court in Rome, right? So the prisoners claim here, Paul has claimed that, that, that a, the crucified, a crucified and rejected Jewish Messiah had personally commissioned Paul in a heavenly vision to bring people from every nation to repentance and faith that does not strike the governor as appropriate evidence at this trial. <laughs> Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. But Paul responds with great composure and dignity. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And then we can imagine Paul nodding his head toward Herod Agrippa. 
the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus and his bringing the message of light to Israel and also the Gentile nations, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. So here we have a claim about the public nature of the evidence available for Agrippa and the others to consider. Christianity isn't secret, right? It's not subversive. It's not some weird cult in that sense. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I love that. It gets right to the point. It's wonderfully bold. Do you believe the prophets, King? I know you do. And I'm sure at this point, the whole court gasped. Had any prisoner ever before presumed to address his royal highness with such impertinence? Agrippa, I think he's unhorsed for a second. He's too embarrassed to give Paul a direct answer uh, to a direct question and too proud to allow himself to, uh, to allow Paul to dictate the topic of their dialogue. So Agrippa, take, Agrippa takes evasive action uh, with an ambiguous counter question, right? Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. So they all agree about that. The prisoner may have been insane, but he's certainly not a criminal. Their, their private, private verdict of not guilty is unanimous. Verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, but they can't get in the way of that appeal process now. Uh, and Agrippa, he's quite right in theory, uh, but to acquit Paul now, that would be to short circuit everything, and they can't do it. Appeals to Caesar can't be undone, right? So in God's providence, Paul is transported to Rome where he will testify to Emperor Nero about Jesus Christ. And then next week, we'll look at his transportation to the capital and what God has in store for him. Amen.